as we deep dive into these chilling tales. We all need a moment of escape, a way to unwind without the shadow of the night creeping in. Here's where recess mood comes in. Crafted with real fruit and infused with mood-lifting magnesium and stress-balancing aptogens, recess mood is your guilt-free retreat. With just 20 calories, no added sugar, it's not just a sparkling water. It's a sanctuary and a can. Imagine unwinding during a gripping episode of foul play with a can of strawberry rose, or my favorite, raspberry lemon. Letting the stress melt away without the aftermath of alcohol. It's my little secret to staying balanced in the chaos of a busy life. You deserve a healthier way to unwind, to recharge, and to prepare for the next journey into the unknown with foul play. And for the devoted foul play listeners, you deserve a healthier way to unwind. Head to takearecess.com slash Shane to get 15% off Recess Mood, your go-to alcohol replacement. There is no better way to experience a crime story than through the lens of an author born and brought up at the scene of the crime. Arnold R. Brown's book, titled Lizzie Borden, The Legend, The Truth, The Final Chapter, is oddly optimistic because it takes a different outlook on the murder. Brown must have been aware that the authors before him tried to claim that they knew the enigma of the Borden murders, but could convince very few of their knowledge. There was always something missing, always something wrong. No matter the proof gathered, court documents cited, and witness testimonies mentioned, nobody was ever satisfied, because none of it ever led to a final answer. The question always remained, but who did it? Brown tells us in his introduction that he was born and brought up in Fall River, and that Lizzie Borden had died just eight days before his second birthday. He believed the mainstream story of the Borden murders was true. Lizzie was evil, and the Sunday school teacher got away with it. So it wasn't until he left that little bubble and moved to Florida that his outlook changed. He encountered a man from his hometown, Louis Peterson. Naturally, their conversations drifted to the Borden case, arguably the story that put their little town on the map. It turned out that Louis Peterson's father-in-law, Henry Hawthorne, claimed to have met and even known the murderer. Brown asked, Are you referring to Lizzie? And Peterson replied, No way, I'm referring to the person who actually murdered them. According to Peterson, at age 89, Henry Hawthorne had written an accurate account of the murders, all in an attempt to clear his head and come to terms with reality as death loomed over his head. 
It was the most detailed and, by Brown's words, compelling argument they had of the case. According to the Hawthorne version, some motives provided a semblance of logic to what had always been senseless acts. Eventually, these motives and reasons would become too dangerous to reveal. As a result, Brown felt compelled to explore these accusations. He claims to have spent two years investigating the case and comparing the facts to Hawthorne's own writings. He found an eerie degree of similarity. We spent the last episode exploring different angles, but Hawthorne's account does not incriminate any of the usual suspects. Lizzie, Uncle John, Bridget, mysterious boyfriends, none appear as suspects. There is a new character in the story, Hawthorne's mother-in-law, Ellen Egan, only a young woman at the time the tragedy struck. According to Brown, Ellen was on an errand on August 4, 1892, when she passed the Borden home and noticed Bridget Sullivan cleaning the windows. Hawthorne's account directly quotes her, Imagine being so stupid as to be outdoors cleaning windows in this heat. Ellen went to the store, got what she needed, and returned home. She passed the Borden house again and witnessed something that, according to Brown, would haunt her for the rest of her life. The following is a direct quote from Brown's work. Ellen noticed a man standing in the Borden yard. When she looked at a stranger for the first time, she did the ladylike thing and shifted her gaze. There was something weird about this man. He was facing her. Roughly midway between the gate and the back porch, he turned around as if to return. She could only see his left side and his back at this point. His clothes were filthy and coarse, and what drew her attention was that he was wearing an overcoat on one of the hottest days of the year. Ellen first mistook his coat for burlap, but then she noticed he had a burlap sack over his shoulder and half tucked under his arm. She could tell that the overcoat was a long, duster style, like nothing she had ever seen. She felt strange, almost terrified. He stopped and turned to face her. His gaze was drawn to hers. It's easy to see how this could unsettle some readers. When the murders occurred and the news spread quickly through Fall River, Ellen stayed quiet, not wanting to be part of the controversy. However, if you asked her what she knew of it, she'd only tell you she heard tongues wagging that it was the maid because, quote, you know how them Irish is. With time, Ellen couldn't keep a critical piece of information to herself. The maid may or may not have been involved, but the man in the foul-smelling coat certainly was. Ellen overcame her reluctance and went to the police station, where she met with Officer Michael Mullally about a week after the killings. According to him, she blurted out, she was far too outside, and I'm not lying, before clarifying that she meant the Borden's maid. Brown feels that the police exploited Ellen and her story to boost their case against Lizzie and the maid, telling the local paper, quote, Another woman popped into the case Wednesday afternoon, although she did not remain long. A teen who worked with Wilkinson, the local ice cream vendor, said he saw a lady exit the Borden yard at about 10.30 a.m. on Thursday. Officers Harrington and Doherty began to work to identify this woman. They discovered that Ellen Egan was going through that area on Thursday morning when she became unwell. She entered the first yard she came to, but it was Dr. Kelly's yard adjacent to the Borden home, and the boy was wrong. 
Brown mentions and interprets well-known data from the case and original information to support the argument he carefully lays before the reader. This is backed up by Hawthorne's writing and Lizzie's famous comment to her close friend, Alice Russell, quote, I am worried somebody will do something. I don't know who, but someone will do something. Now, how on earth would Hawthorne know? Ellen's information, after all, was the result of nothing more than a fleeting glance, undoubtedly exaggerated by her own fear. It turns out Henry Hawthorne had worked on Bill Borden's big apple farm as a boy. Strangely, Bill could farm effectively, despite being described in Brown's book as both intellectually lacking and mentally sick. The adult Bill, who is claimed to have had the mental skills of an eight-year-old, habitually clutched his one favorite thing, a hatchet, like a kid holding a comfort blanket. Bill often spoke to his hatchet in front of little Henry in the manner of a youngster confiding in a teddy bear. In his account, he wrote that Bill would ask him, You know my father and that fat so he married when he should have married my mother? You had to know them since you were there when they died. Brown writes that Hawthorne talked about Bill Borden with Ellen years later, after he married her daughter, and what he knew struck her cold. She asked if the man she saw outside the Borden home could have been Bill, and in an effort to get answers, she drew up three lists. The first was a list of events of that day that she recalled. The second comprised of a list of everything that Henry Hawthorne said about Bill Borden. The third consisted of things stated about the killer at Lizzie Borden's trials. And though the list didn't contain absolutely every shred of evidence in this case, none of the points contradicted the other. In other words, it seemed like puzzle pieces fitting perfectly together. Arnold Brown's book, for at least a while, became the answer to the age-old unsolved mystery of the Borden murders. Of course, there was no one left to charge, arrest, or ask questions to, but the final chapter was more satisfactory than what the Borden fan club had had in years. However, cracks began to form soon enough. The part of Brown's work that depended on Hawthorne's writing was, in essence, the rambling of a dying man, or in the words of some critics, a collection of disjointed ramblings with events arranged backwards, simple timing wrong, and significant characters wholly regarded, or at best, shifted from their regular placements. The fan club would soon have another theory to latch onto, one that we will explore in episode four. It will be the last time we discuss theories before we dive into court proceedings and shocking revelations of the case that not even the best fiction writer could cook up. But do you believe it was Bill Borden and that Brown and Hawthorne were right? Do you have a theory of your own? Keep working on it while you wait for the next episode. And thanks for listening.